Uh, Deuteronomy 7 and Numbers 33. You want to find those? Lord God, we do thank you and praise you, Father, that uh, we can be in your house, Lord. Father, uh, we ask and uh, thank you for the humbling that uh, you bring to us, Lord. Father God, uh, just today we ask that uh, you'd work in each one of our hearts, Lord. Father, uh, we thank you just that so we can be here and we have the freedom to worship you. Use your word now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, it's going to be the last um, sermon on idolatry. So you're going, good. That's fine. <laughs> So, um, yeah, this will be the end of stage two, where we did uh, sanctification in the first one, and now idolatry, and then uh, we're going into the seven nations next, or the motivations of the heart. So, so for this, Deuteronomy 7.16, uh, you must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you, the key there, the, the Lord gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity, and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. In Numbers 33, I'm down in verses 51 and 52, <clears throat> way down. Same idea. When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and their cast idols, and demolish all their high places. Uh, so, uh, God is giving some pretty, um, I don't know what you want to call it, heavy instructions here, right? We serve a God who does not compromise, okay? And you can find that throughout the Bible. It's just a couple examples. So, what is God saying here to Joshua? And so, what is he saying to the Israelites? And because he never changes, what is he saying to us? Destroy, no pity, no images, no idols. Essentially, to anyone who claims to be following God, he is saying, do not mix and mingle with the world. That is, do not combine love for God with love for the world, or you'll end up making an idol. Okay? The world slowly sucks you in and deceives you to take a little here and a little there. Right? If it was obvious, we'd never do it. Uh, and before you know it, you have a lifestyle that is not putting God first in all areas of your lives. You have an idol. So, yes, we go out in the world and we be around all the people in the world, but we don't necessarily have to do and say and go everywhere they go and do and say everything they do and say. Uh, the Bible tells us, to, yes, to be in the world, we are a part of this whole thing, but don't be of it. Don't do as I do. When we are subject to the law or any authority which is not the Holy Spirit, it is idolatry in God's sight. Why is that? Why would that be? Because putting laws before God circumvents, goes around our full devotion and obedience to him. When God meets man-made laws, God wins. Right? We must always look to the Bible for our laws. So what's the solution to this? According to Scripture, 
utterly destroy these worldly things out of our lives. Get rid of them, right? Doesn't say all at once, but as we've been talking, we're getting rid of one part of the flesh, another part of the flesh. Keep giving them over to God. <clears throat> God doesn't change, so God's instructions do not change. Right? As I said at the outset, they're for us as well. They are the same for ancient Israel as they are for us. When Jesus fulfills the law, follow Jesus, not man-made law. This is why, as we said last week, if you remember, uh, we cannot drag a bunch of worldly sayings or beliefs along with us from childhood. Uh, I gave some examples, but here's one. Uh, if you want something done right, you'll have to do it yourself. You know, we have tons of these things. Uh, save your money for a rainy day. That's all man-made stuff. It's not in the Bible, right? Uh, and then we have the tendency to heap these man-made things onto other people uh, as though they are gospel, right? As though they are part of our belief. Uh, human wisdom must not interfere with following the Lord or its idolatry. Uh, next slide. <clears throat> Uh, we'll talk about reputation for a minute. God is not like man. Big revelation. Uh, in other words, he's not concerned about his reputation. Okay, He's not worried about that. Uh, what about the flesh? The flesh uh, has three overarching interests. Uh, it wants to find acceptance. We all want to be accepted, right? Just natural. Uh, it, at the same time, the flip side of that coin is it fears rejection. Okay? I don't want to be rejected. Nobody wants to be rejected. Uh, but watch out the lengths we go to to prevent that. Uh, and we seek approval, even adulation or accolades. We carry that out to the end worship, right? We want to be held up high. Our flesh does. So freedom to walk in the spirit must dominate over one's need for acceptance from others in the world. Our reputation is a wall between us and God and his purposes for us, or it can be. Uh, the image of our goodness, imagine our goodness, uh, that we present to others needs to be crucified by confessing our faults. I don't know if you followed the uh, Asbury Revival in uh, Kentucky, I think it is. Uh, that whole thing kicked off by one young man standing up and uh, confessing his faults, confessing, you know, things that he had, I guess, done or whatever, sins he had committed. And then I think somebody else followed and the Holy Spirit just descended. <clears throat> the thing about maintaining outward images is it takes our energy. And it takes our focus, right? Our focus gets off of Jesus and onto ourselves. And uh, when it does that, that is becoming a Pharisee, right? Outward appearances. So worried about all the rules that we forget the relationship. So just any, anything the Pharisees did, do the opposite, basically. <laughs> Don't do that. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know what Jesus said about it. Um, Oh, I heard a story this week. I don't know if I can get it exact, but um, um, a church had, um, had received a new pastor, and he, he hadn't arrived yet. 
And so uh, the uh, new pastor decided that he would dress in rags uh, like a homeless person and before the service go in and just walk and greet the people as a new person. And uh, as you might expect, uh, they snubbed him. They hardly greeted him. You know, no one offered him any help or anything, even though he was obviously poor and lowly. And then he sat in the back. And then uh, the church went over the announcements and said, you know, we're a welcoming church. And, you know, this is our mandate for the community. And then they said, but we have a special announcement this week. We have our new pastor who's coming up. And the uh, guy gets up the back pew, wanders up, and then gave a sermon that day on, you know, uh, fellowship and stuff. So, yeah, it were appearances. In relationship, now think about this, in relation to the holiness of God, that's what we're talking about. In relation to the holiness of God, we are no better than the unbeliever. We're just forgiven, right? We have a better destiny, but we are not better. We are not holy. Remember, in relation to the holiness of God, we are not holy. We are being made holy, right? Sanctification process. Uh, so as a church, we must never, ever pro project any kind of image of self-perfection, lest we keep the unbeliever at bay. And this is not news to you that unbelievers intuitively know that we are not as good as we project. So you might as well drop the image anyway, right? <laughs> because you know yourself. You can walk out of here and you know, you know, what people are like. Well, people know what you're like. So, uh, yeah. Um, we are to be um, we are to be at the same time real and we are to be relatable and we are to be ready to um, give our testimony right? highlighting God's goodness and how he brought us out of our challenges uh, our imperfections if you will so I'm not saying we should sin that grace may increase, as Paul said, by no means. Just don't pretend we don't sin. You can handle that double negative. Don't pretend we don't sin. Uh, Jesus was of no reputation, the Bible says. He was free, in other words, to do what he knew was right before God without concern for what others will think, would think of him. Put your reputation in God's hands and he will put it to death and resurrect it in his good time, right, for his purposes. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Right? He'll only lift you up if you humble yourself before him. Um, yep, next one. Okay, our teacher. We are the most taught people on planet Earth. Almost as if that could save us by learning more and more and more. And in this area, we have the most universities per capita of any province. Um, but newsflash, learning more and more can't save you. If it could, Judas, who was at every service, eh? <laughs> at every meeting, right, would have certainly been saved. We would do well to spend more time in prayer to learn from our true teacher, the Holy Spirit, as John 14, 26 says. 
Yes, the Holy Spirit does use people, but he must be the final authority. He must be the final authority of three things, of what we retain, what you hold on to, what we accept, and what we reject for our lives. Okay, so you run everything by the Holy Spirit. Okay, if you're wrestling with some concept or something, just go and ask him. Um, I wrote beside this, pray, submit all teaching to the Holy Spirit for him to give it meaning for our lives. Father, give this teaching meaning, right? In this way, he will make what we learn relevant. He'll show us things about ourselves because we're all different and we all need to be shown different things. We're all in different places in our lives and our walk. The church may be the Holy Spirit's agent, but it's the Holy Spirit that we must acknowledge and make our teacher, or we make the church an idol. It's like, what? I can't do anything right here. There's <laughs> idols everywhere, you know? Um, it's an idol if we put it ahead of God. We put the church up on a pedestal, right? The church has to be here. God's here, right? No God in the church, so that's more important. So remember how we started this section, someone coveting uh, and hiding silver and gold, right? If you go back and read that passage, uh, this Israelite, uh, Achan, uh, stole some silver and gold and a precious garment hid in his tent, remember? We mustn't hide things in our hearts. We must not hold things back that should be devoted to God, in other words. Or this will lead to lack of authority over the enemy in our lives, okay? Um, what is that thing that God never seems to give you relief from? You know, think of that thing in your life. Um, he's not the one holding back, right? Otherwise, Scripture wouldn't say, ask, seek, and knock, and I will come in and sup with you, right? He's there waiting, open arms. Again, loving some worldly thing is idolatry to God. Coveting or loving something from the world hinders our relationship with God. So not only idolatry, but idolatry does something, right? It blocks that relationship. <clears throat> okay, next one. Uh, examples of idolatry. Uh, try to help me correct people if, or correct yourself if you uh, misquote this quote that says, money is the root of all evil, right? Uh, we've all said that before. Uh, you lay a dollar there and um, there's no evil in it. There's nothing in that dollar. But as soon as someone picks that up, right? Anybody see Lord of the Rings? Gollum with the ring, my precious. <laughs> um, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Right? Put it in the wrong place. Okay? Money can feed the flesh with power and self-indulgence. And Matthew 19, 23 says this. It's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Because he has power. He, has, or he thinks he does. He has no needs. Or he thinks he has no needs. He can buy distraction from sin. That is self-indulgence. All right? Rather than look at your life, just buy another thing. Just go out and get more entertainment rather than sit and look in. Uh, and Luke uh, 18.22 says, Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell everything and follow him. Why? Because his good deeds were not good enough to get him into heaven. 
As long as we are empowered by anything other than the Holy Spirit, the flesh will use it for two things, independence from and disobedience, disobedience to God. You know, flip side of same coin. Um, so then the question arises, can you be rich and surrendered to God? Is that even possible? Uh, I would say yes. And here's how. Um, depends on how you got rich, really. Um, wealth built by the arm of flesh is a stumbling block to spiritual growth. Uh, and that is because if you're building in your own strength, it will lead to always choosing yourself first, right? Um, over others. Uh, so I just put tramping down, you know, I'm gonna get to the top at whatever cost, right? Whoever's in my way, you know, I'm going first. Um, and, oh, unfairness. Same thing, choosing yourself first, right? Um, if you've ever heard of uh, the phrase insider trading, somebody in the government gets a tip about a hot stock and they buy up a lot of that. Unfairness. The only example I can really think about, you know, in business there's a lot of them. Um, and what does this do? It builds pride. I did this, right? I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, right? <laughs> All those sayings. Uh, but wealth from the spirit brings joy and peace. There's not constant free fear of losing your wealth, right? Um, it has no hold over you, okay? It's a totally different world. The Holy Spirit reveals which it is. God will consume all our sources of independence in just the perfect way, right? Just a way that's gonna set us free, that we couldn't do ourselves. <clears throat> tithing. I'm a big believer in tithing. Uh, I wasn't always, right? And uh, I was one of those people who said, well, I'd go to church if you didn't ask for money, <laughs> right? I mean, how many people have said that, right, and heard that? It can be idolatry. It doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not necessarily idolatry, but it can be if it's not surrendered to God, right? Um, it can come from a place of pride, okay? But what the Bible is all about is not equal giving, but equal sacrifice. Remember the story, I don't know where it is, I didn't look it up, but of uh, the poor widow who came and gave a half a penny or something, and Jesus looked as he saw all these people going and throwing in all this money, and he said, I tell you this lady, this woman, uh, has given the most, because she's given out of her poverty, not out of her riches. She gave all she had. <clears throat> When we surrender our giving to God, his promise is to meet our every need, not our every want, right? Jesus demonstrated this principle in the feeding of the 5,000. He multiplied what they did have. They didn't have very much at all, did they? Was it two loaves and five fish? They got that the right way around? Um, but he multiplied that out, that 5,000 people. Uh, so I was thinking about that, thinking about how many of us can't read this, I wrote this way. How many of us have had our finances multiplied unexpectedly in different ways? I always thank God for the skills he's given me. And I don't know what skills you have, but 
The skills you have can make you a lot of money, but it can save you a lot of money because you haven't got to hire everything out. Okay? And I'm always amazed at how many ways God allows you to save. If you try to um, have $10 in your hand, you have to probably earn about $20 or $25 to get that. Right? So every time I don't pay out 10 more dollars, right, that means I didn't have to earn that 25. There's many ways he multiplies that out, finding a good deal online. I'm just always amazed that what God can do with a little bit. And I don't know what your experience is, but ours seems to be that the more we give away, I don't know how this happens, other than say God, the more we seem to have. Isn't that, you guys could all testify to that. Like, how did I get that deal? I don't know. Just I was in the right place, right? Uh, I was telling uh, Shane and Wayne this morning about uh, getting, uh, I don't know how much, like $50 sheets of Jiprock for $5. Who does that? Like, who can get that? You know, it's like, but it's just endless how he multiplies it out with a little bit you have. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. We read right by that, but what that means is he has resources you don't even know about. Think about uh, all the stuff he, that didn't happen to you in your life that saved you from, you know, wisdom in the marketplace. Um, we can get focused right on the little details sometimes, but look big picture uh, while at the same time having enough for today. Your life lasts more than a day. You are in the sanctification process, right? Um, there are times in the process when we remain in need. Might always not be everything there that you might need. But the key is, what is your response when that happens? Right? Do you gripe and grumble and say, oh, I should, you know, look at that guy, I should have what he is? Or do you trust that there's a purpose in this need? You know, I gotta admit, I don't always go that route. Sometimes I grumble, but trying as we walk with God to get less grumbling and more trusting. So we're trusting that he has a purpose either to humble us, you know, to get us to rely more and more on him. People will pray a lot more if they're in need. We know that. We pray a lot more when we're in need than when we're in uh, plenty. Uh, it could be for discipline, and this is something only you and him know. Right? Something that you share that he's dealing with you with. Or it could be to instruct. If you're in need, maybe you need to be a better steward of your finances. Do you really need that thing? Um, the law, wherever you say That's wonderful. The law demands 10%. God wants 100%. What? He wants, in other words, complete surrender. Right? Uh, not every dime is not each money, right? <laughs> He's got it all. Um, he just wants a complete willingness for you to give, right? The heart, the heart motive, right? And we're going to get into that in the next section. Um, so give your giving, give your giving over to God. Uh, giving out of a heart of love, not obligation, not because of the law. Living in faith is not easy. This is not easy. This is not an easy walk. It would be so much easier for me just to go and live like the world lives. That's easy. Just grab pleasure here, pleasure there, and carry on. Right? Um, so it's not easy. 
It's not easy trusting. Um, and it really does help if we have examples, in, if we're an example, right? And that's why we need leadership. That's why we need to look to Jesus. And I just want to talk about leadership for a second. Next slide. Uh, we know that leaders are held to a higher standard. Um, that's why don't always aspire to be a leader, you know, unless you're ready and called, uh, ready to be held to a higher standard. Um, so we just want to look at what it's like or what it means to be a leader, right? What it means to be like Christ, our leader, our example. So the concept of a leader, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Um, so first, uh, before I read that, the first thing about leaders, and there is, I think I have six things here. Leaders uh, make others more important than themselves. Okay? They're not always looking at what they can get. They're able to look out, which is a general sign of maturity. So Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambi ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So you're the ultimate other-centered person, right? Other-focused. So that's the first thing. Make others more important than themselves. Uh, secondly, leaders sacrifice their life for the body, just as Christ did. So they're willing to give till it hurts, right? They don't get what they want, but they're concerned that the body uh, has what they... Because they're following the example of Christ, right? Uh, third, leaders should do whatever it takes to create opportunities for the body to mature. Right? So they're looking for ways to help others. Right? Ways for the body to mature and develop into fruitfulness regardless of the cost to themselves. You know the word altruism, right? Sacrificing yourself for others, being altruistic. Um, now this is ultimate. It's hard to be the perfect leader and do all this, okay? Um, fourth, leaders must be able to identify giftedness in others. So they should study the gifts or the gift lists. That doesn't just mean read the list in the Bible. What does that mean, gift of service? And go find commentary, study that stuff. Uh, and why should you do that? In this way, they can place people in the role in which they are best suited so they can be successful. That is, build the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, fifth, leaders must set an example of humility. And how do you learn humility? By sitting at the feet of Jesus. So sitting in prayer, right? And learning. And finally, uh, six, uh, three overarching qualifications of a leader. Uh, first, hear, hear and walk obediently to the Holy Spirit. So hear the Holy Spirit and then do what he says. That's a leader. And as alluded to, love the body, second thing. And called at this time to serve. Okay? So, are you called to serve at this time? Um, Titus 1, 9 and 10. Paul said, uh, leaders must be able to discern and protect the church from false doctrine, especially the idolatry of legalism. In other words, replacing relationship with rules. 
and that legalism uh, there, what it actually says is it refers to the circumcision group, and that meant that you, they said you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. So adding something to the gospel, these rules, regulations that's, that are not uh, gospel. Okay, and it's the last slide. Next one. Um, so just to wrap this up, uh, the whole time we've been talking about the death of the Adamic nature. We put that word into our mind, Adamic. Uh, the Adam, the old Adam, right? Um, and just to wrap up, um, using Jesus' death and the whole thing around Jesus' death as a pattern for the way we let go of all these little things in our lives, the way we um, take one more thing of the flesh to the cross, one more thing, okay? Um, first thing, Palm Sunday, before any of this happened, he's coming in, they're putting the palm branches down the road, he's coming in on the donkey. Um, Jesus enters Jerusalem as a symbol of his lordship and authority to reign, and for us, it's like a prophetic word uh, a revelation of what he will do in our lives before he does it, okay? He hasn't been to the cross yet. He hasn't done this. This is just him coming in, the triumphal entry, they call it. Uh, so we're going to the promised land, but we don't know exactly what it will take to get there, okay? We know that we have something over here on the other side. There's good stuff for us, right, in eternity. Um... We're on our way to the promised land, but we don't receive the promise right here, okay? It's the first step in the process. Kingdom treasure can only be had through death, okay? That's why every time we have the death of another area of our lives that wasn't surrendered to God, more treasure in heaven. Uh, second step uh, to this whole flesh death thing uh, it's the Last Supper. Here he's preparing the disciples for what was to come after his resurrection. Okay. He modeled humility, first of all, by washing their feet, and then second of all, in general, through his love and commitment to the church, being willing to die for the church. Okay. For us, in this flesh-death process, this Last Supper symbolizes a short season of intimate fellowship. There he was. Right? With his disciples around the table, you know, um, washing feet, sharing, loving on each other. So there's this intimate fellowship and reassurance from the Father that we're on the right path. It's a good thing that you want to do this, that you want to get rid of this out of your life. It's a good thing, you know? Um, and then intimacy, you know, him reassuring you that you're doing a good thing, you're doing the right thing. Um, so this reassurance happens before it becomes obvious, you know, what you're giving up or what you're going to give up or the depth of what you're going to give up. Then we come to Gethsemane, um, the garden. It's a place of sorrow like that which precedes the death of an area of the flesh. Because if you, we are who we are and we carry these things with us throughout our lives. And now we're... 30, 40, 50, etc. And 
we have to let go of this thing. God has come in your prayer time and he's pointed this out. He has brought it to your mind that this is not a good thing for you, not a good thing for your relationship with him. Um, so letting go of something brings a sorrow up because it's been part of you, right? Even a depression, right? Which is a sense of loss. Um, so it's a place of sorrow, like that which precedes the death of an area of the flesh, and it's also a place of choice. Remember what Jesus said? He said, um, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Great prayer when you're struggling, when you're trying to let something go, say at the end of it, but not my will, but thine be done. Give it back over to him. Okay? So it's a place of choice. You can turn back at this point. Okay? You've held that thing all your life, and he said, give it up, and you're trying, but you go, mm, not right now. <laughs> I'm going to turn back to that thing and, you know, just have one more, whatever. One more experience of that thing, one more self-indulgence. Um, but if we face the death, it becomes a sweet sorrow. There's still a sense of loss. You know, you've given this thing up. Um, and in this time, and remember what happened, Jesus' disciples deserted him. Um, so here we feel this deserted uh, emotionally and physically and even spiritually. You might not be able to get any sense of God's presence no matter how hard you pray, but he's still there, right? The old footsteps uh, thing, right, where he carried you through the, the problems. Um, <clears throat> but you have no sense of that. Physical, people will turn away. You no longer hang out and do that same stuff you used to do. So people are no longer your friends anymore. <laughs> They're sacrificing something here, right? You no longer can do that. Um, I've had an experience that I had a friend for 40 years and extremely sad that um, him and I don't talk. And we have it for three years. And it's, we can no longer um, deny our belief. Mine went this way, his went that way, right? Hard thing after 40 years to just give that up, you know? It's like, ugh, I shouldn't have to do that, but, you know, it happened. And I, and I used to kind of, and I think he used to kind of, we'd meet somewhere in the middle, we'd compromise. I'm just not willing to compromise. I cannot deny my beliefs, right? Um, <clears throat> so you might feel deserted, can't say that word, but deserted. Um, we can feel no comfort here. The death is ours alone. Nobody else has given this thing up. Okay? Nobody else is struggling with this. It's you that has to deal with it. Okay? Then we get to the cross. This is death. Okay? This is what has to happen. Okay? As much as we don't want it to happen. So everything in us at this point is raging against this. I want to keep that. I want that friendship. I want that 40 years. I want that thing, you know? Um, so we're raging against giving up this area of our flesh. We're human. That's part of it, right? We want things to stay the same. Come in the chairs are in a semicircle. I don't like that. <laughs> I want things the same as they were. Uh, it makes us feel safe, right? So it is natural that we want to hold on to what we, our standard thing. 
you know, Leanne and I joke now we have this routine, get up, put the boiled eggs in the pot, someone put the bread in the toaster. It's just like this routine you get into to get out the door. And that's true of our lives in general. We like things to stay the same. We don't like death. We don't like death in our lives. We don't like when we lose a loved one, right? Um, so the cross, this whole uh, death experience, um, feels like emptiness. There's a spiritual darkness here, but it's not evil. It's just a lack of light. It's a lack of being able to see a way forward, right? But you're in a really tough place, um, a wrestling match. So this torment can provide us a glimpse of what awaits the unsaved, who will experience this uh, momentary torment that we're going through, like Paul said, but forever. Okay. It's not a good place in some ways, but it is good because what comes out on the other side, the last step is resurrection. Okay. When resurrection happens, it's almost a surprise. It's almost unexpected, right? It's a wonderful revelation and sweet intimacy and fellowship with Jesus because now that other block is gone. That other thing that was holding you, right? Now you can get closer still. Okay? Um, so there's a deep, seemingly effortless humility that comes. Okay? Wow, I'm humbled by this experience. Wow, God, I didn't really know how much of my life that was taking up. And now it's like, I'm free. Wow, let that go. Um, through pain and then to the other side um, you're grateful you're repentant for your rebellion sorry God I resisted you so long in that area right I wish I had just let that go years ago um, it's a spiritual high uh, suffering's gone uh, there's nothing compared to uh, the treasure suddenly available to us new aspects of God you know, that we see, feel. The Palm Sunday prophecy is fulfilled. Another part of the flesh is crucified. So now, what is this new reality like? Uh, there's new freedom and perspective on the kingdom, new spiritual authority in general. Um, we know that if we hold onto an area of our lives, we have no authority over that, right? And you let it go, now you have authority over it. God gives you authority over it. It no longer controls you, your behavior. You see new things in Scripture. Um, scripture become, comes alive to you more. Uh, there's new authority also over this particular area of the flesh, like I said, specific area. So you can minister. You know yourself, you can minister to people that are suffering the thing that you've already gone through and conquered, right? Uh, you can be the best counselor in that area, you know, if you've already dealt specifically with that. Um, you have revelations of understanding, knowledge, and wisdom that take up residence in your heart. These new things that God can show you and teach you because you're now no longer hindered in that area. And if you want to flip to Romans 6, just close with this for a second, and um, just verses 4 to 7. As I read them, think about this whole process that we just talked about. And uh, Romans 6. Yeah, so think about this in relation to this um, giving up something in your life and going through this process. Um, and it's talking about being 
baptized, but baptized into death, right? Like giving up something. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This is his resurrection. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, all those old flesh areas, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So every time you let go of a, another area of the flesh, you're no longer a slave to that area. Right? Now you can walk in newness of life and new freedom. Okay. All right. That's it. Thank you. Good. Thank you, Andrew.